The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. Okay, welcome. Um, hi, my name is Sam Quinney. I'm the interim director of the lab at DC, and welcome to the second ever live taping of the podcast at DC, uh, which you can subscribe to on iTunes, uh, anywhere you get your uh, podcasts. Today, we are very fortunate to have Chris Myers-Ash and Derek Musgrove to do a conversation about a book that has been uh, making the rounds in the lab at DC and in the Office of the City Administrator, and I'm sure in the rest of Washington, DC, uh, Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital. Um, gonna give a brief intro to both Chris and Derek, and then we'll get started. Chris Myers-Ash recently moved from his hometown of Washington, D.C. to Maine. Uh, he's a graduate of Duke University with a Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina. Like myself, he taught for Teach for America, but he's in the Mississippi Delta. And he co-founded the Sunflower County uh, Freedom Project in 1998. Uh, he's the author of The Senator and the Sharecropper, The Freedom Struggles of James O. Eastland and Fannie Lou Hamner. And he's the editor of Washington History Magazine. He also teaches at Colby College part-time while running the Capital Area New Mainers Project. He and his wife have three children. Derek Musgrove is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He's the author of Rumor, Repression and Racial Politics, How the Harassment of Black Elected Officials Shaped Post-Civil Rights America. He's also the author of a number of popular and scholarly articles on post-civil rights era black politics and Washington, D.C. He received his Ph.D. in U.S. history from New York University and lives with his wife and two sons here in Washington, D.C. I am personally tremendously excited for this conversation. I wish you could sign my Kindle. I'm almost done uh, with Chocolate City. But in case you have not heard or have not read any of Chocolate City, it tells the tumultuous four-century story of race and democracy in our nation's capital. It's emblematic of the ongoing tensions between America's expansive democratic promises and its enduring racial identities. Washington has often served as a national battleground for contentious issues, including segregation, slavery, civil rights, the drug war, and gentrification. DC, as we all know, is more than just the seat of government, and our authors here today highlight the city's rich history of local activism as Washingtons of all races have struggled to make their voices heard in an undemocratic city where residents lack full political rights. So we are going to be doing this as a live podcast taping, so I'm going to turn it over to the authors now, and at the end we're going to be asking questions, and a quick note that when we do those, we're going to be asking you to speak into these uh, microphones so that your voice is captured on the podcast at DC. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Chris and Derek. <laughs> 
All right. Well, well thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so we'll do t three quick things, and then I, I know that uh, many of you have the book. Uh, uh, certainly, you all are thinking constantly about uh, how DC works uh, and and how our history influences the city today. Uh, and so we'll we'll do three quick things, and then we'll open it up to questions and, and let you all drive the conversation for roughly the second half. Uh, of the hour. Uh, and those three quick things that we'll do is we'll talk about why we wrote the book in the first place, uh, uh, why we named it Chocolate City, uh, and then why folks uh, not just in D.C. like yourselves, but outside of D.C. should care about the racial history uh, of this city. If we have time, we'll tell our, our favorite stories from the book as well. Uh, there's a few in there. Um, so, uh, Sure. So uh, I'll talk about why, why I, how I came to the project. Um, so I, I am a native of D.C. and, and uh, grew up here. I went to Deal and Wilson, Lafayette Deal and Wilson up in Northwest. And uh, I remember when I took D.C. history. This was back uh, when it was a required course for ninth graders. So I was at Deal Junior High. And we were using the same book that they still use uh, today, uh, City of Magnificent Intentions. And, and I remember our teacher passing out the book at the beginning of class. Uh, it was supposed to be a semester-long class required for all D.C. public school students. And she's passing out the book and she says, I just want to let you know that we're going to spend about six weeks on, on D.C. history. Um, and that's it. And then we'll move on to, to world history, which was supposed to be the second semester. Uh, and she said, because, you know, D.C. doesn't really have much history. And, you know, I'm in ninth grade. I don't really know. Uh, that much about DC history, but it really, it struck me then and, and strikes me still today that here's this DC public school teacher uh, talking to DC public school students about their own history and basically saying, you don't have any history. There's no history here. Let's move on. Uh, you know, I live in Maine now. People are fiercely proud of Maine history. And, I, and I've told that story and people are shocked. I mean, you know, they're like, I can't believe, it. you know, no one would ever say that about Maine. Um, and, and it really strikes me that, that that story is emblematic, I think, of how a lot of people who are not from D.C. look at D.C. as a, as a place without history or, or people who move into the city and act as if the, the city's history began the, 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 the day they arrived. Um, and nothing else was going on until they got here. Uh, because I think D.C., by and large, does not res receive the respect it deserves from the nation that it serves. And so, in some ways, Chocolate City is, is, a, is a very long <laughs> response, a uh, long-awaited response to my ninth grade history teacher to say, you were wrong. Actually, D.C. does have a history. It's a very rich and very interesting history. And it's a, it's a story that's important, not just to DC public school students and DC residents, but it's a story that's important for, for all Americans because this is the nation's capital. So, you know, Chris uh, was required to learn DC history. And of course he grew up in it, uh, being born in the city. Uh, I stumbled into DC history. Uh, I was born in New Haven, grew up in Baltimore and moved to Washington, D.C. after I finished graduate school, uh, largely because during high school and college, I had fallen in love with Howard University uh, and, and the, all the great parties and, and the people that were uh, uh, happening in the city uh, in the mid-1990s. And so I decided to move back here, and a job opened up at UDC, and I took it. Uh, and a couple of years into my job, um, I was planning on teaching African-American history, and my course under-enrolled. Uh, and UDC had this policy where if your course under-enrolled, you know, that it gets canceled right then and there on the first day and you just are assigned another course. The problem was that the only other available course to assign was DC history. 
Uh, and my chair, you know, I sort of bit her lip and said, good luck with that. And I, I, I protested. I said, I know nothing of D.C. history. I, I studied it just a little bit in my dissertation, really just studying Marion Barry and Walter Fontroy. But I know nothing of the city's history. And she said, well, get to reading. Uh, and I, I stumbled through the semester. Uh, my, my students were real jokers. They, they would ask me about all these outlandish conspiracy theories, like whether or not uh, Pierre Lanfant had, had drawn an upside-down pentagram. Uh, in the streetscape when he designed uh, the, the city. Uh, you know, and they would, they would ask it seriously, and I'd have to go research it to make sure I wasn't, you know, and so I'd, I'd be up every night just reading, not just reading the real stuff, but then like, you know, going through the, the, the black holes of the interwebs, uh, trying to find out if there were in fact, you know, uh, uh, any truth to what these things my students were asking. And so when Chris gets to campus a couple of years later, I tell him this story and I was like, man, it was crazy. I mean, I, I just, you know, it was the worst semester I've had yet in my professional career trying to get through this class. And by the way, along the way, I came to love DC history and, and I, largely because I love my students who made it so difficult for me. And Chris was sort of silent through the whole story. Uh, and then a week later, he sends me a book proposal. And little did I know about this background story that he had where he had been stewing about what this teacher had said to him uh, uh, you know, a solid 15 years before. Uh, and so we edited the book proposal, sent it off, and uh, came up with this thing right here, uh, which many of you have uh, at least read a part of. Now, aside from, you know, sort of Chris's revenge narrative and, and my sort of romantic comedy as far as coming to this book, um, the other reason that we decided to write this book was because it was necessary. Uh, we were very clear when we sat down to begin writing this book in, in 2011 and 12 that people wanted a book like this. Uh, the city was changing dramatically, uh, you know, day by day, month by month. Uh, the black population in 2011 dips below a majority for the first time uh, in a solid 50 years. Uh, and so we knew that large numbers of D.C. residents who saw the city that they knew vanishing before their eyes wanted a book that told that story that they remembered. We also knew that huge numbers of new residents were coming to the city and wanted to know what in the world they were getting into. Uh, because, you know, there are a lot of folks who come here and sort of figure that the city starts when they get here. But they know, based on the interactions that they have on the street, that there's a backstory that they should probably learn before something goes terribly wrong, right? Uh, and so we knew that there were two different groups of people in the city who wanted a book like this. Uh, and so we jumped in uh, and were able to come up with, uh, with Chocolate City. And so the title. Why the title? You know, it, it's funny. I was, uh, I was going through security this, this morning uh, at one of, these, one of these buildings where I was just trying to get a bite to eat. And I had the book out and goes through security and the, the security guard looks at it and she smiles. She says, Chocolate City. Yeah. And she and, she, she and I talked for a little minute about uh, growing up in, in D.C. in the 70s and 80s and, and what the title meant. And, and it, it, you know, we love the title. I mean, it was the, it was the title we instantly uh, chose. And, and, you know, but it's, it's interesting, the reaction, because we get that. I get that reaction from pretty much. We were joking about this earlier about pretty much every security guard that we go through you when know, the book passes through, they'll smile and, they'll, you know, and it's, a, it's a great conversation starter. Um, but when I first told my, uh, my wife's family, we were, I remember when, we, when I sent that proposal over to Derek and he said, we, you know, he agreed to work on it and I was getting all excited. We were getting into the research and I go to dinner with my wife's family um, and, I'm, and I'm telling them about this new project. I said, oh, you know, Derek and I are going to work on this. We're going to study race in D.C. and the book's going to be called Chocolate City. Everybody goes silent. And my wife's cousin 
She's a you know, good white liberal in her 20s. Uh, she looks at me kind of horrified. And she says, are we allowed to say that? <laughs> She's a little nervous about, about saying this. Uh, and, I, and I've gotten this reaction uh, many times from when I, when I speak to primarily white audiences, especially folks who are not from D.C., uh, because there's this sense that, oh, that's a, that's a bad thing, right? If, a, if something's called Chocolate City, that must be a bad thing, right? If, if, if it's a black city, that's therefore negative. And, and I got to roll them back and say, no, 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 you don't understand. Chocolate City is very much a term of pride. It's a term of joy. It was a term of hope. It, was, it, it comes out of this era uh, in the 1960s and 70s where there's a very large black majority and D.C. is really a, a cultural capital and a, and a political capital of black America. Uh, and so uh, there, there's, there's nothing in my mind, you know, as I'm thinking about it, there's nothing negative about it at all. I mean, to me, it conjures up my childhood, but it, but it also speaks to this, this really powerful and hopeful era in, in D.C. history. And that's why we wanted to, to, to use it to, to speak to that. Yeah. Um, now, how many P-Funk fans are in the room? Parliament Funkadelic. Don't, don't be shy. Come on now. This is P-Funk. Okay, we have at least three, right? And um, y'all know that the mothership is, is just a couple blocks down the road in the, in the new Museum of African American History. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when, when we started sending the, the book proposal back and forth, I mean, we, there was the first thing that we decided, it, w- it was immediate, as Chris pointed out, is that we were going to call the book Chocolate City. And we had a very specific referent when we decided that that was going to be the case, and that was the Parliament Funkadelic album, Chocolate City. Uh, It came out in 1975, and it was literally a love letter to what George Clinton argued was the capital of majority black cities in the United States of America. When that album comes out in 1975, the city is roughly 72, 73% African American. Uh, And so it was not only the first majority black major American city that happened in 1957, but by the mid-1970s, it's one of the most majority black uh, cities in the country. And as far as uh, uh, George Clinton uh, and his massive fan base here in Washington, D.C. was concerned, that was uh, a wonderful thing. Uh, because we have to remember, you know, sometimes when we look at majority black cities today, like Ferguson, Missouri, um, they, are, they don't necessarily evoke pride, right? Uh, because you have a very large black population that's largely politically powerless, Right. But Washington, D.C. in the mid 1970s had a couple of things going for it that made Chocolate City hands down an expression of pride in this city and its black majority. Uh, The first was that we were the capital, symbolic capital of the United States and uh, really the symbolic capital of black America. Right. Because of that massive black population. But the other was at the exact same time that we became as much D.C. began to get democratic local governance for the first time in a century. Uh, in the 1870s, uh, the vote was stripped from D.C. residents, all D.C. residents of all, all racial backgrounds, uh, with the collapse of the Reconstruction government here. Um, and during the 1960s, because of Cold War reforms, but also because of civil rights and black power agitation, uh, the city gets slowly but surely um, local governance for the first time in a century. We get a school board in 1968. In fact, I should point this out. I, I found this out in some, some of the research that I'm doing after we finish the book. Um, when President Lyndon Johnson reorganizes the district government uh, in 1967, it essentially gives us what looks like uh, an elected government, but it's all appointed. So sort of a mayor, commissioner, and an appointed council. 
he gets to choose all of these people. And D.C. residents just decided with Marion Barry and Julius Hobson and some other civil rights activists at, at the, the fore of this effort that we're just going to hold a plebiscite. We're going to have a vote on these appointed people and we're going to tell President Johnson who he should appoint to the newly appointed uh, mayor commissioner position in the council. And they just they had vote mobiles driving around the city collecting votes. Uh, they had uh, a voter registration station or, or a, a polling station at the um, Masonic Temple on U uh, Street, right across from what's now the African-American Civil War Museum. Um, and they got thousands of people to vote for these appointed positions. Uh, and then, of course, President Johnson said, those guys are radicals. I'm not going to appoint any of them. Uh, and he appoints uh, much more moderate people to the council. But they kept demanding it. And in 1968, we get a school board. In 1971, we get a non-voting delegate to Congress. And in 1973, uh, we get a elected city government for the first time again in 100 years, right? So not only do you have a black majority, but that black majority is gaining democratic rights year after year, right? And to top it all off, D.C. is a cultural capital at this time. P-Funk knows this, and the reason they, they named their album after D.C. is because they would do shows here, and they would be massive, absolutely massive, and really, really funky, right? Um, but also, people like Chuck Brown are creating whole new forms of music here with Go-Go, right? Roberta Flack is cutting albums here. I mean, you could go on and on and on and on, right? Uh, black power poets like Gaston Neal are here, etc. And so D.C. is really a cultural capital at the same time, too. And so when people said Chocolate City in the 1960s and 1970s, they meant a really remarkable place, right? Um, and because that name stuck around well through the 1990s as, as the preferred moniker for the city, we knew uh, that we had to call the book by that same name. But we had a problem. <laughs> the problem is we want to write a 400-year history of the city. Right. It, I mean, I, you could very well write 600 pages on, just on the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, and, and, and maybe somebody in this room is going to take that challenge on. Uh, we will not. But we wanted to tell a story of, of race in the city going all the way back to the first contact between Native Americans and, and European settlers. And our editors and other folks would say, well, Chocolate City doesn't fit. Right. It only it, that's only for a, a brief window of time in the in the late 20th century. And our arg argument actually was, no, 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 it actually does fit uh, in the sense that that race and in particular, the large population, the presence of a large black population is the single most important factor that that helps you understand the course of D.C. history. You simply cannot understand D.C. history without understanding race and its impact. I mean, aside from being the national capital, which is why it's there, but why is it here on the banks of the Potomac? Well, that has everything to do with race, right? So even its very existence, even its very shape, why isn't it a diamond like it used to be? Why, why was Virginia retroceded? Well, that has everything to do with race. And so we argue that the, the presence of a large black population, about 30% at the city's founding uh, in 1800, it, and, and eventually grows to a majority in the 1950s, but that that black population has a profound impact on the on the course uh, of the city and so we argue that that indeed it, it has been a chocolate city from the beginning and will continue to be uh, even after the end of the black majority because people will say to us now people say oh well you know it's not a chocolate city anymore we say really you know the, the, the black influence on the city is not going away anytime soon right Boston is still an Irish city but Irish people have not been a majority of Boston for many generations, right? The influence uh, will linger long past whether it's a, a majority at a particular point in time. So that's one 
piece of the puzzle. Uh, and the other piece is, as Derek was saying, in the 1960s and 70s, um, DC has always been a beacon of black freedom and opportunity. And this goes back even into the antebellum era, where even though slavery did exist in the city, unlike other places in the South, there also was a vibrant anti-slavery community. There was an abolitionist movement here in, in Washington, DC. You didn't have that in Charleston, right? You didn't have that in, in other Southern cities. You had a vibrant anti-slavery population and you had a small but growing free black population as well from the very beginning. And so by 1830, as slavery starts to wane, as DC urbanizes and the, and the demand for enslaved labor wanes in the city, by 1830, the majority of the black population is free. And they start building institutions, community institutions, benevolent societies and schools, private schools, uh, churches, and, and they create the, the foundation, the nucleus of this, of this very strong black community that flourishes during and after the Civil War. By the, the late 19th century, we have the largest, most educated, most prosperous black community in the entire country. And it's very much an educational mecca for black students centered around not only Howard University, but also the, the black public schools, which become national models. You have black families moving here to send their kids to Dunbar High School and, and other black public schools. This was the, the best place in some ways to be, to be black in, in America. And you had many leaders, Booker T. Washington, Kelly Miller, others who would say as much. That can, can I just give them one stat? So, there were four textbooks written between about 1890 and 1920 by black public school teachers in the entire United States, textbooks that, that covered African-American history. Of those four textbooks, three were written by DCPS teachers, three out of four in the entire United States, right? Just to give you an idea of the influence of this uh, community on black education, Right. I'm sorry, I had to get that. No, out. no, I think it's, it's, it's great. And, and, and it underscores the, the point that D.C. has always been this beacon of black freedom uh, before slavery, after slavery, during the civil rights movement and, and in the late 20th century. And so D.C. is very much a chocolate city from, from the beginning. But why should anybody who's not a, a kind of a local D.C. history buff, why should anybody care uh, about D.C. history? Excellent question, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> So first thing is that, that D.C. is the symbolic capital of our democracy. It's, of course, the capital of the United States. Um, and it really ends up being the stage in which, on which the pageantry of American democracy plays out, right? Whether it is all of the events that, that happen around the inauguration uh, or all of the protests that people bring to Washington, D.C., which is primarily a 20th century phenomenon uh, to seek redress from the federal government. But this is a place where, you know, we try to figure out how we're going to make our democracy work and certainly the symbolic place where we try to do that. Um, and because DC residents have ready access to that stage, in fact, they live on that stage, right? That means that they have ready access to the symbolic nature of American democracy. I mean, they can essentially insert themselves in many of the debates that we have about the shape of American democracy. Uh, and you see that happening across the city's history, uh, whether it's Howard students demanding during World War II that DC lunch counters be desegregated because, my God, how can we be doing this when we're fighting against Nazism? right, a white supremacist theory overseas, if in fact we have a white supremacist theory here in Washington, D.C. And so they march down the hill uh, and jump on the stools at some of the city's uh, local restaurants and seek to desegregate them. 
right? Um, you can also see that from the other side. Uh, uh, proponents of segregation demand that the capital remain segregated uh, or else it may threaten uh, that philosophy further south, right? Uh, in fact, Theodore Bilbo, the famous uh, uh, Mississippi segregationist, easily one of the most absurdly uh, racist individuals to sit in the, the, the Congress of the United States, which is to say something, right? Um, you know, essentially says when he gets the, the chairmanship of the D.C. committee in the Senate, I mean, I got this committee chairmanship so that I could keep D.C. segregated. Why would his constituents care? They're in Mississippi, right? They care because it's a symbolic center of our democracy. It's also a battleground. So it's not just a symbol of America. Also, what happens in D.C. becomes a, a battleground itself in these larger national battles. And you can see this in the, in the battle to end slavery, for example. You know, we think of the abolitionist movement. We think of this national movement to end slavery in the South. Largely, in its first decades, it was about D.C. Because not only was D.C. the symbol of, of the entire nation, and therefore it was symbolically important that we end slavery and not have this taint on our national character, as, as the abolitionists would say, but also because of, of a practical reality. And that is that Congress controlled D.C. then as now. If con Congress wanted to end slavery in D.C., it could do it today. None of this business about states' rights and any, you know, if you want to end slavery in Mississippi, you got the state legislature, you got this, you know, federal state issues, you got all this stuff. Congress could do it right away, and the abolitionists knew it. And so when, when they called for an end to, sla to slavery, you know, as the abolitionist movement picks up in the, in the early 1830s, they're talking about D.C. They're not talking about Mississippi. All these pe petitions that start flooding into the, the Capitol, they're about D.C. They're saying, Congress, end slavery in D.C. now, because this matters. And so they're fighting about what, what is happening in D.C. They're fighting about, about it. This becomes the, the key battleground in these larger national battles. I mean, William Lloyd Garrison says D.C. is the first citadel to be carried. And John C. Calhoun on the other side, the senator from South Carolina, he says, whoa, this is our Thermopylae, right? We, we can't, if D.C. goes, everything's lost. The Georgia State House, the Georgia State Legislature in, in the 1850s listed the, the reasons that it would secede. They were already talking secession. The number one reason, if this happened, we would secede. And that was to ban slavery in D.C. Because it was a barometer of power. Whoever controlled D.C. is going to control the nation. If the abolitionists can win D.C., they're going to control us too, right? So Southerners dedicated to perpetuating slavery, abolitionists dedicated to ending slavery. They're both fighting about D.C. And so we see D.C. emerge as this battleground during slavery time. We see it during school desegregation where they're fighting about D.C. schools, right? Who's going to control D.C.? Because this really matters. It's a barometer of, of power. And so D.C. often winds up as, as the battleground for these much larger national issues. And last, D.C. is a laboratory, right? And this is an extension of that battleground uh, discussion. But, you know, because Congress, through Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, has full oversight in D.C., can literally just pass laws that, that uh, uh, shape the city's governance, um, it's able to do things here that, it me that members may want to do back home, may want to take nationwide, but want to try them out first and make an argument for why they will probably work somewhere else. Uh, and so you see people sort of tinkering with D.C., trying out things that they plan to take national later on, right? And I'll give you two quick examples, right? Uh, and we're, we will constantly talk about Reconstruction and the Civil Rights era because 
they're the crucial moments in American history and certainly in D.C. history as well. So it's 18, it's the 1860s. Radical Republicans are in charge of Congress because all the Democrats have gone off and made a new nation in the Confederacy. And they decide that they want to end slavery, right? And then, of course, the uh, local African-Americans are demanding an end to slavery. And radical Republicans in Congress say, let's try it out in D.C., uh, and then maybe we'll be able to take this thing national if it works out there. Um, and so they try it out in 1862, which we celebrate every April as Emancipation Day. Um, they passed compensa- the Compensated Emancipation Bill. And that essentially says we're going to set up a, a big old fund for the roughly 3,000 plus slaves that are, still reside in the city. We'll pay all their owners a couple hundred bucks each. And they will be after that free. Uh, and this was, you know, this really showed Lincoln's uh, uh, influence, right? Because he had, he had believed that compensated emancipation was the best way to go. That ends up being a precursor for the Emancipation Proclamation, which, of course, goes into effect on January 1st, 1863, and does not include compensation, right? Uh, and so that was a tweak that people decided to take out of that experiment uh, uh, as it goes national. You look again, another group of radical Republicans coming to the Capitol in the 1990s. Right. And there's a small group among them who really want to push charter schools, school privatization. But the vast majority of the Republican caucus does not want charter schools. Most of them are from suburban districts. The schools work just fine. They see no reason to put them in competition with another system. Um, But that small group of more radical Republicans on this issue says, look, we'll push charter schools in D.C. and then see how it goes. Right. Uh, And so in the mid 1990s, we get charter school legislation here. And that has had such a remarkable impact in the city that today, as all of you know, roughly half of our students are in charter schools, right? Many of the people that push that legislation through Congress do not have a similar situation in their home states because they were trying it out here uh, to try and figure out whether or not they wanted it to go national or to come home. And so D.C. ends up being a stage. It ends up being a battleground. It ends up being a laboratory. You want to really quickly do our favorite favorite stories? Okay. So, well, you know, when I was writing the book, I had this friend in, uh, in Maine and every so often, you know, writing a book is hard because you spend years and years, of course, and you, you know, your friends are just, they'll be, oh, you know, how's the book coming along? Well, thanks. But, you know, answering that question every week gets a little bit uh, tired. You know, you start feeling self-conscious, like, yes, I'm still working on that book. You know, but I had this friend who was like, all right, you're on Oprah. You got 30 seconds. What, you know, what are the key takeaways? What are you going to tell uh, Oprah in those 30 seconds? And, you know, and I dutifully, tr- you know, tried to, you know, hash out, the, you know, the three key takeaways. And when we first started doing these book talks, especially in, in some of the wonkier parts of, of D.C., they, they, they'd always ask this. What are the takeaways? And finally, I was like, you know what? I know what you're asking. You don't want to read the book, right? <laughs> you just want me to tell you what's important so you don't have to read the book. And so my takeaway is don't let me or Derek or anyone else tell you what the takeaway is, right? Because you've got to discover it for yourself. This is a 600-page book. There are lots of great stories in here, some of which are going to resonate with you in a different way than they resonate with either of us or, or with anybody who else who reads the book, right? Different characters are going to speak to you in different ways because of your own experience, right? And so, I, you know, I think we, we, we get we get a little bit lazy in our, in our culture today. You know, like we, we just want the headline and, and people will say, well, you know, I don't have time to read a 600-page book. And I'll say, really? How many pages on Donald Trump have you read in the last two weeks? Probably more than 600, right? And, and they're all passe by now because he's done something else uh, <laughs> already. You know, so I say that to say we really 
poured ourselves into this book. We, we, we tell these stories in this book because we want you to experience them. We want you to, to read them and, and, and understand them and resonate with them. Some are going to really resonate with you in, in, in powerful ways. I'll tell you one story that I have that, that resonates with me and, and share it with you. Uh, in the spirit of saying, discover one, a story of your own that you're going you're gonna to resonate with in the book. Uh, but I love the story of the freeways. I know it's not the sexiest of topics when you first begin, right? Big strips of concrete. Stay with uh, it. But, you know, so freeways tell a lot about this city, right? If you go back to the 1950s, freeways were the thing. Everybody loved the freeways. Every, you know, all the, uh, the contractors loved the freeways. The politicians loved the freeways. The press loved the freeways. Everybody talked about, you know, building, rebuilding new cities, revitalizing the cities. You have these, these, these freeways that would go around the city and go through the city. And, and you know, urban planners loved to draw up these big plans. And they did it in D.C. too, because D.C. was a great place to experiment because you didn't have to worry about, you know, democratic accountability and stuff like that, right? You could just do whatever you want. Uh, and you just had to convince a couple of people on Capitol Hill. And so urban planners had these great plans for, for making D.C. Uh, a, really a, a, a freeway city. And, uh, of course, they, they built one of them. They built the, the Beltway, our beloved Beltway, right around the city. But that was just the beginning, right? They had whole plans. So they were going to build uh, what they called the inner loop. It's not what we call now, but they had, they had the inner loop. So it was like a mini Beltway uh, going right down F Street and, and around the, in the interior of the city. And then you had these 10-lane spoke highways going out, connecting the inner loop with our or what they call the outer loop. Uh, there was actually a third one that they wanted to build too. But this, this was a done deal. I mean, Congress appropriated the money. Everybody who had any power in the city believed in it, loved it, post write articles extolling the virtues of freeways and how this was gonna, you know, this was the way to the future. This was what the city of the future would look like. And these plans land on the lap of this little guy named Sammy Abbott up in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right across the district border. Uh, and he's a little guy, he's got his white hair, bald, glasses, love guys like that. And uh, so you can see why this resonates with me. So, so Sammy Abbott gets this plan in the newspaper <coughs> and his wife points out, says, you, you know, Sammy, that North Central Freeway is coming through our front yard. It's going to destroy <coughs> our neighborhood. And the hell it is. I'm, you know, we're going we're gonna to stop this thing. And mind you, he's like a freelance artist. He has no power. He's just, you know, a random citizen. But he starts knocking on doors uh, and telling his neighbors with the, the, the plan to say, look, you know, your house is going to be destroyed. And he started knocking on more doors. And then they start following that little, the, you know, that, that, that massive highway down through the neighborhoods of Brooklyn and, and CUA area, all through these neighborhoods that are going to be destroyed by this highway. They start knocking on doors again. Uh, and opening up the doors are, are low-income, largely Afri African-American people. And they agree with him. They said, no, no, this, we can't let this happen. And he finds this guy named Reginald Booker. Reginald Booker is 26 years old, tall African-American guy. He's got the afro, he's got the dashiki, he's got the shades. You know, he is the picture of, of mid and late 1960s uh, African-American nationalism, right? So you got Reginald Booker, you got little Sammy Abbott, and the two of them go around and they make this unbelievable team. And they've got all, they enlist all kinds of people. They, they enlist white lawyers west of the park. They enlist people in the suburbs of, of Maryland and Virginia. They enlist college students to chain themselves to, to the bulldozers. I mean, they do whatever. They, they're, they're protesting on the, on the day of the Martin Luther King's assassination. They're everywhere. Anytime there's a hearing, you've got, you got 50 people from what they call the, the Emergency Committee on the Transportation Crisis, ECTC. 
And there, you know, Sammy Adams will jump on tables at, at these hearings. Uh, during one hearing where the, the appointed DC council votes to go ahead and build all these highways, he's, he's jumping on the table. The cops come to arrest him. He jumps on this cop, like wrestles him. Mind you, he's like 70 years old, right? And he's like wrestling the guy to the ground. He, he gets thrown in jail over and over and over again. Uh, William Raspberry, the, the famous uh, black columnist for the Washington Post says, you know, Reginald Booker and Sammy Abbott are crazy. But crazy is the only thing that's going to stop these freeways and save our city. And they were right. And what's interesting, you know, in 1964, those freeways were inevitable. Everybody knew that they were going to, they were going to be built. The money was there. The power was behind it. D.C. had no, no right to vote, had no power to leverage. And yet, by 1972, they were impossible. They won battle after battle on the streets and in the courts to stop those freeways in your track. That's why when you go, you know, you're cruising in on 395 and you're coming under the Capitol and you're going 65 miles an hour. And what happens at New York Avenue? What happens? You stop. When I was a kid, when I was first getting my license and I was driving, I hated that. I'm like, who did this? Right? Who, who, you know, who stops a, a, a highway in the middle of a city? The answer is Sammy Abbott, Reginald Booker and, the, and ECTC. And now I realize they were right all those neighborhoods would be destroyed. It was inevitable in 1964. It was impossible by 1972. Now it's unthinkable. Couldn't imagine our city looking like, like Houston or, or LA with just these ribbons of, of freeways everywhere. So, you know, we, we haven't done the book talk in a while together. And I always, I always forget if we haven't done it in a while that I'm supposed to go first on this one because Chris always does a great job with the ECTC story. Uh, and mine's pretty weak by comparison. Um, so, you know, at, at, I think the stories that we, we really love uh, from this book are the ones where people who appear powerless uh, are somehow able to work their will on the larger political situation. Uh, in this case, you have uh, homeowners uh, who have no access to government that will respond to them. Remember, they're petitioning an appointed council that has absolutely no say over what Congress wants to do, right? And the story I want to tell is about the people who make the effort to build a democratically accountable local government, right, of which many of you are now part. Right. Um, and that's, of course, of Walter Fauntroy. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm working in his papers right now over at GW Library, primarily on stuff that he was doing in the late 1980s. And I, I am just astonished by the fact that this is a man who is regularly playing on the national level, uh, constantly trying to figure out how to maximize the city's impact, working with people like Jesse Jackson, but also folks in California and Alabama and all these other states, um, trying to figure out how he can have really a national impact, right? much less uh, a local impact. And keep in mind that then, as now, his position doesn't even have a vote on the floor of Congress. So Walter Fauntroy, in, where I'm going to start the story in, in the 1960s, is, uh, of course, the pastor of New Bethel Baptist Church. Uh, he is a prolific local organizer with the, the, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference, but also with MICO, the Modern Inner City uh, Community Organization. Um, and so he's, he's got his hands in a lot of local projects. He's also working with the Black United Front. Um, and he decides that it's really time in the late 1960s, early 1970s, to make a concerted push to pass legislation in Congress to gain a local government for Washington, D.C. Because of things like the, the freeway fight, right, where 
people from Kentucky are just mandating that the city build all these free day, freeways that have been put on uh, a map. And he's saying, you know, we really need to create a local government that can push back against this in official capacity. Um, so he begins to organize local folks to jump on buses and head down to the 6th District in South Carolina. And there in the 6th District of South Carolina in 1970, up for re-election, is John McMillan. Uh, who is a hardcore segregationist. He actually has a little picture of a, of a Confederate soldier on his door on Capitol Hill, right? Um, and that says, you know, you know, never surrender, right, uh, underneath this, this, uh, this, this Confederate soldier. Um, and he has been using Washington, D.C. for 20 years as a jobs program for out-of-work South Carolina residents. Uh, uh, many activists from the 1960s like to remind us that if you wanted a job in the, the uh, Metropolitan Police Department, you could apply for it in his congressional office in South Carolina, right? Um, and, you know, he was at the forefront of opposing every measure that would have established a local government for Washington, D.C. Why? Because he was the mayor of Washington, D.C., actually called himself such. Um, and Walter Fontray said, look, if we can defeat this guy, the next person in line to head that committee is Charlie Diggs, my buddy, African-American congressman from Detroit, who will back home rule legislation, right? He'll actually let it through. Um, so he had, sends people down to uh, South Carolina in 1970. They campaign hard against John McMillan, with, uh, pushing an African-American uh, uh, primary opponent uh, in the Democratic primary, and they lose. And Walter Fontray says, great, we learned a couple things, we'll try it again. Uh, head back down there in 1972. This time, they use a moderate white opponent in the primary to challenge him, and they beat him. And when you look at this campaign, it's remarkable. I mean, there's actually tape, uh, a, a woman found this a couple of years ago, of John McMillan, you know, who's looking around and like Coretta Scott King is campaigning in his district, Ralph Abernathy, uh, Martin Luther King's good friend and now the chair of the, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He's like, I don't even know why these people are in my district. I mean, there's busloads of people from D.C. What are they doing here? He's like complaining to the local news. And Walter Fauntroy is like, yeah, we sent them all down to get rid of him, right? We didn't want a segregationist running Washington, D.C. He's defeated in 1972. Um, and of course, that means that this now 70% black city has as the chair of the House District Committee, Charlie Diggs. First thing Charlie Diggs does is put a home rule bill before Congress. Uh, they make a lot of compromises. A home rule bill was not great, but it does create a democratically elected local government. Um, and by 1974, we have elections for a mayor, for a 13-member council, for the ANCs. We essentially have the government that we continue to have today. And that's because someone like Walter Fauntroy, right, has no vote on the floor of the House, has no seniority in a, uh, in a institution that uh, depends on seniority, right? But he does have his franking privileges. And back then you could, send, you could send letters at government expense into anyone else's congressional district, right? He used his frank. He used a couple of church buses from D.C. Uh, and he used uh, the will of D.C. residents to have some type of democratic governance uh, to topple a several-decade incumbent who had ruled the city with an iron fist and essentially is able to gain the city home rule, right? Um, he learns from that lesson that we can actually do this on a national level and try to get statehood. And he actually branches out and tries to amend the Constitution in the late 1970s to gain us two senators uh, and one voting member of the House of Representatives. It actually passes Congress in 1978, the D.C. Voting Rights Amendment, 
Unfortunately, it's not ratified by the state legislatures. But he was constantly using this, this you, strategy. You got to tell him about Strong. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> so Walter Fontray, you know, loved to do work in South Carolina. You know, he had realized after he had, he had defeated John McMillan that he could just go back to South Carolina and continue with this strategy. So in 1978, when the D.C. Voting Rights Amendment is before the Senate, um, Strom Thurmond is also up for re-election. And many of you know Strom Thurmond. Uh, he is um, one of the longest-serving members of the Senate. And for a time, he was the longest-serving men- member of the Senate. Uh, he was former governor of South Carolina. He had run for president on a state's rights party. Uh, so hardcore segregationist. Um, and he's up for re-election in 1978, and it's a close re-election. And this time around, large numbers of African-Americans vote in South Carolina. So Walter Fontra said, we did it in 72, we'll try it again in 78. Sends buses of uh, uh, volunteers down to South Carolina to encourage African Americans to consider what Strom Thurmond's uh, uh, vote will be on the DC Voting Rights Amendment when they are considering who to vote for in the primaries in South Carolina in 1978. And Strom Thurmond realizes what's going on, so he does an internal poll. And his pollsters come back to him and he say, they say, look, 57% of South Carolina African-Americans have heard this message, and they say, depending on how you vote on the D.C. Voting Rights Amendment, um, they will either vote for you or, or against you. Um, and so he says, oh, shoot, that's good enough for me. Lifetime opponent of increased D.C. Uh, voting rights heads down to the well of the Senate and says, D.C. voting rights are a human rights issue, and I'm voting for them. He even gets Barry Goldwater to vote for the D.C. Voting Rights Amendment. Um, he gets all of these conservatives to come in and vote for it, and it passes, right? Uh, and so, again, this is Walter Fontroy with no sway over these people within the institution itself, figuring out how to create power for the citizens of the District of Columbia. Um, unfortunately, uh, because of the people who had mobilized against the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, they, they also mobilized against the D.C. Voting Rights Amendment, and it falls uh, in the early 1980s. But we were, we were close, and I think that that story, like most of the stories that we tell, gives us a blueprint for how we can carry on the fight in the years ahead. Uh, so with that, I, I, we'd like to just go ahead and open it up to questions. And I also want to point out, um, we, we can... Uh, sell books after the question and answer. Uh, they will be $35 a piece, and we can take cash, or we, we also have a card swipe uh, as well. Uh, so with that, do folks have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you very much. I'm Dale Hill. I spent a lot of time living in Capitol Hill, but I'm now in Bethesda. I would be interested in the role of some of the institutions that have been around for a long time. One would be the Washington Post, and one would be, well, the two major universities you mentioned, Howard University and, and UDC, and how do they figure in, in the history? Yeah, we'll <laughs> take question. another hour here uh, on, <laughs> on just on that question. I'll, I'll start with the Post. So, you know, so the Post starts uh, as, a, as a Democratic newspaper in the 1870s. Uh, of course, at that time, Democratic meant conservative, uh, especially on, on racial issues. And, and it starts right after D.C. voters have been dis- disenfranchised, white and black have been disenfranchised, and, and instead of having elected Democratic government, you have three appointed commer- commissioners uh, who run the city. And 
throughout this period, in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, black activists and, and their aging uh, you, you know, radical Republican white allies are agitating for the right to vote. Especially the white labor movement is, is very much interested in, in winning back this right to vote. And there, there's this ongoing suffrage movement. Uh, and the Post is just adamantly opposed to this. And you know, we, we quote some of the editorials. You, you should go back in and, and, and read them in full for yourself to get the full flavor. But they are unabashedly uh, racist in, in, their, in their explanation of the problem. And, and very clear. You know, sometimes nowadays we get a little bit squeamish about how we talk about race and we use euphemisms and code words. I mean, even some of the white nationalists, you know, can't quite bring themselves to, to be so outwardly racist. But the Post didn't have any problem in the 1870s and 80s. And they talk about how, you know, we have, we have surplus Negroes. We need to get rid of them. That's the problem in this city. You know, there's never going to be uh, voting rights or demo- democracy in this, uh, in this city until we get rid of the black folks, right? Get rid of them. Then we'll, then we'll start talking about, about voting again. Uh, and so for its early decades, the Post is very much a, uh, a, an anti-egalitarian newspaper and, and stridently, uh, stridently segregationist. Uh, in 1919, it runs the series of, of articles about uh, this supposed threat from this, this, this black rapist who was who was milling about and assaulting white women and and when a when a white uh, employee of the bureau and engraving and printing gets uh gets accosted one day by by a couple of of black men uh on the street they help whip up this fear you know this 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 anger in the white community um that ends up resulting in a multi-day riot that leaves you know many people dead and 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 has has white mobs uh of uh soldiers you know recently uh demobilized soldiers basically running rampage through black neighborhoods uh in in the city and the post has has a big role in fomenting that uh and and whipping up the hysteria and it's not until the 1930s and 1940s with the change of leadership that, that the Post begins to, to moderate itself uh, with, with Eugene, when Eugene Meyer takes over the, the paper in the 1940s and 1950s. His wife is, a, is um, an activist. She gets involved in many local campaigns, starts touring around black neighborhoods, starts writing uh, op-ed pieces and, and reports about the, the, the racial inequalities in the city. And the, and the Post starts to moderate over time. Uh, and and you know by the 1960s and uh, 50s and 1960s and ni- into the 1970s is actually producing some some really important journalism. They have some some of the best uh, reporting on race. They hire a uh, number of African American reporters, uh, including I mentioned uh, William Raspberry, who are who are writing who are not only reporting but also writing columns about uh, about local politics and about race that are very very different than than their predecessors. Uh, and then you get to the, the election of 1978 when the Post throws its weight behind this, this dark horse candidate named Marion Barry. Uh, and the Post editorial really, in some ways... Uh, six t- editorial. Right, six, <laughs> yeah, one after, but its endorsement uh, yeah. of, of Marion Barry again, when, when, in a race he wasn't supposed to win against these two establishment figures, Sterling Tucker and Walter Washington, uh, really tips the, the scales in, in, in his favor. And so, you know, you know the Post is, has has been on, on both sides uh, of, of this issue over, over time. 
And, and just to add about the Post, I mean, you get some really remarkable crusading African-American journalists uh, working at the Post, particularly in the 80s. And so people like Dorothy Gilliam um, is actually instrumental in getting um, Mount Vernon to begin to recognize seriously its slave past, right? You know, if you'd gone to a tour of Mount Vernon uh, before the 1980s, they'd say, well, the servants stayed here, you know, and they'd sort of dress it up. And, and Dorothy Gilliam actually is end up, ends up walking down a path at Mount Vernon one day and finding this old marker towards uh, 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 deceased African-Americans who had lived on the property and essentially saying, there needs to be a bigger marker and you all need to revise the tours so that we're not just making this out to be like, you know, a Disneyland where George Washington had a whole bunch of black folks that just loved him so much they worked for him for free. Um, and, and so you, you get people like that there. And then, of course, you look at all some of the best books on, on D.C. in the, the latter half of the 20th century, whether it's 10 Blocks from the White House about the 1968 rebellion or um, Leon Dash's um, Rosalie. Right. I mean, these are all written by Post reporters and they're just wonderful chronicles of the city's history. Um, you know, Howard University uh, is, of course, founded uh, by the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, using Freedmen's Bureau uh, money um, in 1867, um, and that's General O.O. O. Howard. Um, and uh, it becomes this sort of backbone of uh, the black upper class and the black elite in, in Washington, D.C., uh, really down to the present. Um, and so you, you get, uh, you know, just in that, that rich period that, that Chris mentioned in the late 19th century, this huge uh, mass of um, doctors, lawyers, PhDs who cluster around Howard University because that's where they're working um, and, you know, sort of add to this, this really large black middle and upper class that D.C. comes to be known for. Um, and then, of course, in the, the middle of the 20th century, you get activist students like Pauli Murray, uh, who helps to lead those sit-ins, uh, you know, um, uh, during World War II. Um, and... You know, that, that just keeps going. Now, interestingly enough, you also have large numbers of Howard students who believe that the university is too hidebound and too conservative uh, because there's a lot of administrators there who essentially say you can't get too crazy on campus because we get a lot of money from the federal government. And the federal government's not exactly stacked with, you know, uh, racial uh, revolutionaries and liberals here. Um, and so what you'll see, particularly in the 1960s, are large numbers of students who say, we have to make Howard into a true black university. And so much, many of the student uprisings from 1968 uh, you know, in particular, uh, when you have the, the huge student takeover of the admin building, um, are all about making uh, Howard University less integrationist, more nationalist. They actually say, we want to make it a black university. Um, and so the, it's, it's played a huge role, though, uh, uh, in, in the city's history. I'll do, you want to do UDC really quickly before... Yeah, so, so uh, UDC is, is, is really the, the uh, combination of a number of schools stretching all the way back into the uh, antebellum period with Mertilla Miner's School for Colored Girls. Um, and over time, it just keeps picking up schools, right? And so you get Washington Teachers College, uh, then you get Miner's Teachers College, which are the two main normal schools uh, for D.C. teachers here in the city. Um, they get rolled in with Federal City College, which is a school created in the 1960s. It's really just supposed to be for very poor African-Americans in the inner city. It's kind of a war on poverty type of uh, program that becomes a college. Um, then also Washington Technical College. They all get rolled in the mid-1970s into this 
uh, huge entity called UDC. And ever since, uh, I would argue, I don't know if Chris would join me in this, um, the school has tried to figure out how to create an identity for itself considering all of these institutions that had their own cultures and their own identities that were mushed together. Um, and it, it struggled over time to do that. It doesn't help that it's also a city agency. And so when the city went bankrupt uh, in the mid-1990s, the control board basically forced then the Barry administration to cut its budget in half. And as part of that process, um, it uh, has to fire a couple hundred teachers. Um, and it loses uh, well more than half of its students. And so, it's, and so, you know, when we got there, it was really struggling to get over the, this, this remarkable rupture in its history, having still not figured out the cultural issues that it was dealing with before the bankruptcy. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a resilient institution, uh, but it, it, it needs more help from the city, um, if, if any of you can, please do, um, to, to, to get itself to where it should be as our state institution. The podcast at D.C. is brought to you by The Lab at D.C., an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Podcasts.